spend some time in the text this morning. Dear Father, we come before you once again thinking of how incredible it is that you would send your son to come and die on the cross for our sins. That uh, he would be buried and rose again on the third day and that you would save us. And then it is remarkable that you would then give us brothers and sisters all around the world uh, and that we can, we're part of this body of your son. And Father, at this time, there are a lot of our brothers and sisters who are in pretty serious position. And we think of our brothers and sisters in India. We think of our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. And uh, we pray for their safety. We pray for the conflicts to stop. We pray that the gospel will continue to go forth and that in, in these really difficult times, people would look to your truth because you're working in their heart to see the truth that's found in your word. We also ask that as we gather together this morning, that we would spend time looking into your word, that your spirit would be moving in our hearts, that we would uh, see our sin, uh, confess our sin, that we would uh, ask for forgiveness, and that we would rely upon the power of your spirit to make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for everything that you've given us, and we look forward to what you have to teach us from your word. In your son's name, amen. So, um, through my incredible time of playing board games throughout my life, I have uh, one of my favorites, which I'm not very good at, is Risk. And I've adopted a policy in the midst of Risk where I start off thinking I'm going to take over the whole world in this board game. And then in the middle, I just change the goalpost so that when I lose, I am not a failure, right? So uh, one time I was playing, I felt pretty confident I was going to win. Halfway through the game, it was very clear I was not going to win. And so my new goal strategy was, if I'm not going to win, this guy's not going to win either. And so I just diabolically blew up the whole thing. Anyways, that, that is kind of an interesting way of looking at things, right? Halfway through, as we're going through something, if we just change the goal, then... We're not a failure, right? Unfortunately, there's a lot of people inside of the church who have adopted this policy when it comes to their spiritual life, right? They start off good with good intentions. Halfway through, they realize how difficult it is, or they adopt some other thinking inside of their mind, and so then they just change the definition of what success is so that they can look back at their life and say, look, I wasn't a failure, I was successful. Last week we talked about a successful life and what what that looks like, a portrait of a successful life from the book of Proverbs. This week we're going to talk about the opposite. I'm going to talk about how you can ruin your life and end your life in utter failure. And I'm going to give you three steps of how to ruin your life. No, Proverbs is going to give you the portrait of what fools do and how fools in the way that they act, in the fleshly way that they act, and as they act in foolishness, that foolishness will lead to failure. And we as believers should take notice because it is possible for us to act fleshly as well, act foolishly as well, 
and suffer some of the consequences that we see here. So go with me to Proverbs chapter 19. We're going to be in verse 24, and Lord willing, we're going to finish the chapter this morning. And as we're looking at this section, there are three things that I want you to see about the future failure of the foolish. There's three things that the foolish people that foolish people do that will amount to their future failure. The first is we're going to see slothfulness. We're going to see slothfulness. We're going to see this in verse 24. In verse 25 through 27, we're going to see stubbornness. So uh, these people who are, who are going to fail in the future, we're going to see them as slothful. We're going to see them as stubborn from 25 to 27. And then in 28 to 29, we're going to see them as devious. We're going to see their deviousness. So let's, let's look at this and let's look at the future coming failure first of the fool who is slothful. Notice in verse 24 what Solomon says. He says, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish and will not even bring it up to his mouth. Now, this is quite comical, uh, if you think about this, of how lazy does someone have to be that they would put their hand inside of a dish in order to eat, and then when their hand is there going, you know what, it's too much effort to bring my hand back to my mouth, right? It, It demonstrates this laziness, it demonstrates this dullness, it, it, it demonstrates this slothfulness, it, it demonstrates this apathy, right? Now, we've seen the sluggard before in the book of Proverbs, and we've talked about laziness, and we've talked about slothfulness. And so far in the book of Proverbs, we've seen that a sluggard will crave a lot, but will not receive a lot. We're going to see later on in the book how a sluggard is one who will make up excuses. He'll say, I'm not going to go outside today because there might be a lion in the street and the lion might eat me. So I'm better safe than sorry to just lay in the bed. There's no indication that there is a lion in the street, by the way. We're also going to see how a sluggard is like a, like a door hinge. And a sluggard, as he rolls back and forth on his bed, it's like a door on its hinges. We see that a sluggard is not proactive and he will not plow in when it's time to plow but when it comes time for a harvest he's going to go out and see what kind of stuff he can get and guess what because he didn't do the work when he was supposed to there's not going to be anything this is demonstrates somebody who's neglectful this demonstrates somebody who actually will work hard at not working at the right thing and we've kind of seen this through the book of proverbs that a that somebody who's lazy We call them lazy because they don't put effort into the things that they're supposed to be putting effort into, and they're putting effort into other things, okay? So it's not necessarily that they're not willing to work. They're only willing to work on their terms, but when it comes time for them to do what they're supposed to do, they're not willing to do this. And so here the image is this sluggard, this lazy guy, and then, yes, it says it buries his hand in the dish. For us, this may sound a little strange, but back then they didn't use utensils. They just had their hand, right? And they'd put their hand inside of the dish. And I can tell you that all the commentators had lots of ink on what this dish was. I'm going to be honest with you. It's something you put food on and you eat. So we're not going to spend a lot of time on what kind of dish these people used because I don't think that's really helpful for us. 
Maybe it is. I don't know. Maybe if you want to look that up later, that's great. But the image is he puts his hand in there to eat, and notice what happens is he's not willing. You see that? And will not even bring it back to his mouth. It's not that he doesn't have the ability to. It's not that, it's not that there isn't anything there for him to eat. It's that he is apathetic towards the task, right? He's lazy, doesn't want to bring it up. Obviously, laziness is a huge problem, and laziness is indicative of a fool and someone who is fleshly. And we can see the effects of somebody who's lazy in our culture, but I don't think that that's really what Solomon's talking about. Is just, is just a get-to-work type slogan that you put up all around uh, workplaces and in break rooms of places of, em- of employment. You've got to remember that the undercurrent of every single proverb is the fear of the Lord. The failure of this sluggard is that he doesn't do this because he doesn't fear the Lord. He's not a good steward of his time. He's not self-controlled. He's not willing to do what the Lord's asking him to do. Ultimately, this issue of laziness is a spiritual issue. It's not an energy issue. It's a spiritual issue. And what's interesting to me is that the sense is, is that as a person gets more and more slothful, they get more and more apathetic. It's very similar to what Jesus says. Remember what Jesus says in Matthew 24 when he says, when lawlessness increases, people's love will grow cold. So the sense is the more that you go into this sin, the, the more that you have this bad thinking about work and, and what we're supposed to be doing and our responsibilities as given in Scripture, the more we step away from that, the colder our love for the Lord and for his word it gets colder, it grows colder. And so the, the idea here is that what's, what's the ultimate failure of slothfulness? The ultimate failure of slothfulness here in Proverbs is apathy. Now, I just want to say this just as a side note. We've also talked about spiritual apathy whenever we've talked about laziness. And let's be honest, there's a lot of times where we will do something very similar to this in a spiritual context. We will go to the word, we will put our hand in the word, and then the ball game comes on. Or this other thing happens. Or this other thing happens. And we're willing to do all these other things, but we're not willing to invest time. And what ends up happening is our spiritual life, our love for the Lord, a love for his word, a love to do his will, grows cold because we're filling our life with other things and we're not willing to dig in and eat the meat and potatoes of God's word. This is something that can happen spiritually as well. When that happens, when we become lazy in our work, when we become lazy in our time with the Lord, the inevitable consequence is spiritual apathy. And when a person has spiritual apathy, that is a dangerous, dangerous place to be, where you have no care, no concern for the things of God, for the will of God, and for the word of God. That is a dangerous, dangerous place to find oneself. The next part of this passage You almost could say this is the first step to future failure, spiritual apathy. 
when one becomes spiritually apathetic, then, as we'll see next, someone will become spiritually rebellious. And when they become spiritually rebellious, then that leads then to this incredible spiritual deviance, right? So apathy leads to rebellion. Rebellion leads to satanic acting. Now, there's another thing that the foolish person does that will set them up for future failure. Notice the next verse. Next verse in verse 25, kind of an interesting statement. It says, strike a scoffer and the simple will learn prudence. Or or maybe better, the, the simple will become shrewd. That's probably a better phrase. Reprove a man of understanding and he will gain knowledge. Now, verse 25, verse 26, and verse 27 are tied together. So I'm going to read the following verses. And it says, He who does violence to his father and chases away his mother is a son who brings shame and reproach. Cease to hear instruction, my son, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. Solomon's saying, look, The way to get knowledge, the way to know God's will, the way to have discernment is to start when you listen to that rebuke initially, change initially. He then contrasts that what we should do was listen to the the instruction and follow that instruction. If there's reproof here, change it now with the contrast of that person that's not willing to change, that person who is belligerent, that person who is rebellious, that person who's a scoffer, and, and we see the consequences of that. So notice, notice what happens. First, strike a scoffer. The word for strike here is punch, a punch in the face. This is a, this is a, this is a, a punishment uh, and a penal punishment. This, is, this was the same type of thing that you would use when you would talk about somebody who received stripes from, from scourging. This is something that they would do as a, to a hardened criminal. This was, this was a punishment from the court. And notice what it says. When you strike a scoffer, it doesn't say all of a sudden then he'll get it. Like you give a scoffer a harsh judgment and the scoffer will go, Oh, the heir of my way. I must change because I don't want this to happen again. No. Notice what it says. It says you strike a scoffer and the simple will show, will show shoot, will learn shrewdness. The implication is the scoffer will not learn because he is stubborn. He doesn't want to be teachable. He doesn't want to listen. He's already rejected the instruction. And no matter what you tell the scoffer, the scoffer is not going to change. Now, there's this other guy sitting off to the side, and he is the simple. Now, remember in the ranking of terrible people in the book of Proverbs. You have the ringleader, the scoffer. He is one who is ultimately rejected, has extreme animosity towards, uh, ridicules all those who follow God's law. Then you have the guy who's underneath the scoffer, the fool. He rejects what God says. He rejects the word of God. He knows better, but he doesn't care. He's just going to do what he wants to do. And then you have the one who's the simple. He's not righteous, and he's not all there foolish, but he's got a really open mind to listen to whoever will talk to him. So he'll listen to the scoffer, he'll listen to the fool, he'll listen to the wise. So, So the sense is, 
if you have this extreme punishment on a scoffer, that person who is simple will learn shrewdness. It's kind of a difficult concept because some people have seen this and they said, well, when he learns shrewdness, this actually means he's going to learn discernment. This means it's going to turn him around. So he sees somebody get a serious punishment and he's going to turn around and say, I don't want that. I don't want to do anything that has to do with that. So I'm just going to, I'm going to become prudent now. Maybe, maybe. The other implication, and this is what I think, is the simple one will see what will happen to the scoffer and go, okay, I'm not going to do that thing, so he's going to learn how to avoid a trap and how not to get caught. The real thing that Solomon wants us to learn is not go around looking at people as they're getting disciplined and avoid what the disciplined person is doing. He wants to go to the next part where he says, reprove a man of understanding. So there's this contrast, right? The simple will see and he'll, he'll gain shrewdness, but that's not necessarily the same thing as the next thing, as the man who's reproved and he's a man of understanding and he will gain knowledge, And gain knowledge here is knowledge of God, knowledge of his will. And this reproof is a biblical reproof, something that comes from God's word. Now, there's people that reject that reproof. And notice what happens in verse 26. He gives us an example. He says, he who does violence to his father. This word for violence is the word for uh, to rob, to maraud, (laughs) to... uh, to devastate, to lay waste, to oppress. It kind of gives you the idea of somebody who's bullying. Uh, you get the idea of a, of a child who's bullying his father, robbing his father, forcing his father to do things. And then notice what it says next. And chases away his mother. The, the idea of chasing away a, a mother is exactly what it sounds like. Pushing her towards one way, getting her out of your life, uh, causing violence. It, it's, it's removing all protection of your father and mother because you're trying to get what you want to get. That's the idea here, right? Stealing, robbing from. This is the complete opposite of what God's word tells us, what he told them in, in the Old Testament, right? Remember the Ten Commandments? Honor your father and mother. If you are... violently resisting your father and chasing your mother away, that is the opposite of honoring your father and mother, right? So clearly this person is not following God's law. This is the opposite. And, and notice, notice what he says. Notice what happens to one who does this. It, it says, the one who does this is a son who brings shame and reproach. A child who does not honor their parents, is an incredible embarrassment to the parents. A child who does shameful things to to their parents, such as robs from them, steals from them, manipulates them, bullies them, will cause people to look at that family and say, there's something wrong there. That's not good. It brings shame brings disgrace. It brings embarrassment. Now, in, in the ancient culture and in an Eastern culture, this idea of shame and reproach is, is far more significant than even here. Here it happens, but there it is a big deal. It's, it's possible that a child could do something that could affect the parent's 
jobs because the job because the child has brought shame on the family and the family is a shameful family therefore they won't get jobs they won't get money they won't they'll lose positions it's not good the, the sense is that it's not good it's never good for this to happen and you would say how do you get there how does somebody get there to bully their parents the next verse this is why it's all connected right this is why it's all connected the wise person will learn because he'll be rebuked and he'll change and he'll follow God's will. The scoffer will not. So Solomon kind of identifies the problem and he says it kind of in an interesting way. He says, cease to hear instruction, my son, and you will stray away from the words of wisdom. So it's almost as saying, look, if you really want to disobey instruction, this is what's going to happen. Now, to a scoffer, this seems like a very empty threat. He doesn't want to know the, the way of wisdom. He doesn't want to know God. Okay, yeah, fine. A scoffer will laugh at you saying, okay, that's not really a threat. But to a person who's reading the book of Proverbs, and as we've been going through the, these 19 chapters, we understand this is a humongous, humongous threat. This is, this is scary so, the idea is that we should be ready to listen, ready to hear instruction. Now, in verse 27, he does, he does kind of affirm a negative here to prove a positive when he says, cease to hear. Solomon is not commanding us to stop listening. It's the opposite, right? He's imploring us to listen. And he says, listen to instruction, my son. And as we've already learned in the book of Proverbs, yes, this can speak of parental teaching of a child but it also could be looked at as we are children of God and we are to listen to the advice and instruction of our father which is given to us in the word and when we cease to listen to this bad things happen for us as believers terrible things happen when we cease to listen and there's lots of ways and lots of little tricks that the scriptures teach us about how we can not listen and how the flesh in, invents all these different ways for us to stop up our ears and different things that we're supposed to be aware of, of people that will teach us and encourage us not to listen to God's instructions. So as early on as in the Old Testament, remember in Deuteronomy chapter 4, when God told the Israelites, do not add anything to this book and do not take anything away from this book. That's a really good starting place of what is one of the tricks that we do to not listen to God's word and be a disobedient child? We start adding things to God's word and taking things away. Now, we're all going to say defiantly here because we're in church and we have to, I don't add anything to the scriptures, and I have never taken anything away from the scriptures. I don't think many of us have done that intentionally. But maybe just because of the way that the flesh works, the way that our mind works, some of our preconceived ideas, don't we insert those into the text and read the Bible through a lens of already preconceived ideas of how we think the world works? That sounds an awful lot like adding something to God's word. 
Have you ever had this one? Where you read something in God's word, it immediately convicts you of your sin, and you either justify your sin, you go and you try to explain how it doesn't talk about your sin, or you just avoid reading it altogether and you just go to another book. That is a spiritual version of taking away. We, we cease listening. There's another thing that the scriptures warns us of, that there are false prophets and teachers that will say things that sound like truth. They will sound like it. They'll say the same words. They'll use the same texts. They'll say things that sound so close. But as you start scratching the surface, you begin to see, oh, this is a wolf dressed up like a sheep. This is a false prophet. This is a false teacher wanting me to move away from the truth. So the Bible teaches us numerous times, be on guard against these people. Why? Because they can teach us things that Twitter, that Twitter pates our mind so that we're not thinking correctly and we start believing a lie. That lie stops us from moving forward in our walk with the Lord and leaves us in suspension, right? It's sound doctrine, understanding God's word from cover to cover. It's, it's in that proper understanding that we can then have a vibrant walk with the Lord. There's other times where we can listen to people who are very well-intentioned who will inflame our passions about things that we've already liked and already want to listen to. They inflame our passions, and we overtly, and, and we feed into that. We go, yes, 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 that's a problem, that's a problem. And, and we forget ourselves. That's why the Apostle Paul teaches us to keep our mind focused on the things that are above where Christ is and not on the things here on the earth, because this is easy, right? This is something that we easily can do. We can, we can lose ourselves, and we can stop listening and start listening to other people. And then notice the consequence when we cease listening to instruction. He says, you will stray from the words of knowledge. You'll, you'll stray from the words that lead you to the Lord. You'll stray from the words that, that teach you God's will. For some, they apostatize. For some believers, we could backslide very easily. We can, we can adopt things in our minds that inform our conduct that is not biblical and we spend years chasing butterflies in the field, right? We don't get anything out of it. We've just been chasing butterflies the whole time. The advice is to be quick to listen to God. Be quick to receive this advice. A fool is quick to reject this. They're not teachable. They're stubborn. They don't want to receive the rebukes. I'm going to live my life, my way, the way I want to do it, and you can't tell me any different. That leads to them walking away. Now, there's another thing that happens. Notice in the next verse, in verse 28 through 29, notice this deviance. It says, a worthless witness mocks at justice, and the mouth of the wicked devour iniquity. This word for worthless witness, it's kind of an interesting word. It's the Hebrew word, bilel. Now, some of you go, well, why do I need to know that particular word? 
Some of you Bible scholars out there go, now I've heard that before. I've heard that word before. Where have I heard that? And, and some of us might say, oh, that might be that passage found in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. So let's just go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 for a moment. Second Corinthians chapter 6. Notice verse 15. It says, What accord has Christ with Baal? Or what portion does a believer share with a non-believer? That word means wicked, evil. And as time has gone on, and they think about the great enemy of God, the great rebellious one against God, they just use that word to refer to Satan. It would be similar to us saying the evil one. So with that in mind, then when I look at this translation, you'll just have to forgive me. I just put in the word a satanic witness, an evil witness. Some translations say rascal. Got to be honest. Rascal in the modern day vernacular just doesn't quite capture the thought, right? Normally I call my son a rascal when he does something that's a little funny and I zhuzh his hair and go, ah, you little rascal. Doesn't have the same feeling as Satan, right? But that's the idea here. Even, even worthless, in some way kind of loses a little bit of that punch, doesn't it? That, that's kind of the idea. It's somebody who's evil. It's somebody who is, really doesn't do anything for the Lord. So from the Lord's point of view, there's no good deeds. Therefore, they're worthless and they're evil. So notice what, what this evil person does. When, when an evil person is in a court, and he's a witness to something. He mocks justice. Now, whether this means that it's because he's lying on the stand, whether this means that he has shrewdly done something which is legal but not technically the most ethical thing to do, it's all of the above. It's somebody who's evil, and when they're in the system, what are, what are they doing? They simply existing in a courtroom, laugh at justice. They're making fun of justice. And then it goes even further. Notice then the further image. Then it says, and the mouth of the wicked devours iniquity. This word for devour is, is the idea of, you've ever seen a cartoon where something's eating and like it doesn't, the food never touches its hands but it's just going into its open mouth like a vacuum cleaner. That's the idea here of devouring. You almost get the idea that to a wicked person, wickedness is a sin party. That's the sense you get. They're having a great old time. Having a great old time. They are so invested in wickedness that they devour it. That's the, that's the thing that, that nurtures them. So think of this. In, in the verse above, Solomon's advice was, listen to the instruction so you don't walk away. The scoffer then turns around and goes, I'm going to do one better. I'm going to act the way I want as if I'm eating sin. I'm devouring sin. I can't get enough of sin. I would love to say that this has never been a problem inside of the church of believers who have found themselves in a position of saying, I love sinning. 
but we've all lived life and we all have had those periods where we do something that we know is wrong, but we do it because we liked it. That's the idea. As believers, hopefully we've repented of that. We've asked for forgiveness and we've made, we've made amends and, and we're walking with the Lord. But, but you understand that this is something that happens easily. So notice, notice what he says in verse 29. He says, condemnation is ready for scoffer and a beating for the backs of fools. The, the idea is that somebody who is this reckless and loves to get in trouble this much, punishment is sure. There's going to be a punishment for them. The, the word for condemnation is ready for the scoffers. This word condemnation, most of the time that it's used, it's used of speaking of God's judgment, of God's condemnation. And Bruce Walkie in his commentary says that, that when he uses the word is ready, this speaks of a, a, a pr- already predetermined judgment that's already happened. Almost as if they're judged already. It, it, that's it. It's, they're judged. And then there's this punishment of the idea of hitting a fool in the back because of his foolishness. And we as believers, we're never in fear of uh, going to hell. If we've truly believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, placed our faith in him, if we've truly believed that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, was buried and rose again on the third day, and we're trusting in that to save us. The Bible says there is now no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Because I'm going to be honest with you. If it was possible for any one of us to lose our salvation, it's already happened. Over and over and over again. But the Bible is very clear, very clear, that it is by God's power and by God's grace that we're saved. And because we're saved by his grace and by his power, based upon his work, when we believe the gospel in faith, we are kept by that power and that grace and that work for all eternity. This doesn't mean that God then winks at our sin as believers. On the contrary, he disciplines us as believers. One of the major ways he disciplines us is through the reading of the word and through that conviction of the word. That's part of God's discipline. And we as believers need to be quick to repent of our sins when we feel that conviction. There's various other things that, that, that God does when he disciplines us as children. Nine times out of ten, though, it's not the way that we think. A lot of times we think of like a natural disaster. and We go, that's it, God's angry. No, that's not necessarily the case. Just because there's a, a disaster doesn't necessarily mean that was God punishing sin. That doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem to be the character of God. Now, he may do that, He he has done that in the past, but that doesn't mean that every single flood in the basement of the parsonage means that Pastor Caleb is a terrible, rotten sinner with unrepentant sin. That's just what happens. Just because somebody's sick doesn't necessarily mean that that's God's judgment. Normally what God does is he allows the consequences of our sin to, to work themselves out. And I think this verse kind of speaks to that, the beating for the backs of fools. If I do something foolish and I do something that deserves a punishment, guess what? God sometimes may allow that to come to fruition, right? I do something illegal, guess what? He may allow me to go in jail 
because that's part of his punishment. But let this be known that if we are devious like this, if we're rejecting God's word and we're apathetic towards spiritual things, something dangerous is in our future. Something bad will happen, and it's not good. And people will get hurt, you will get hurt, your walk with the Lord will get hurt. Normally we think of these things as always being a far way off. But these things happen very subtly, and they're very easy to slip into. Let me give you an example of how easy this would be. Go with me to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, uh, it's kind of the middle of the book. Um, in verse 27, Jesus asks, who do people say that I am? And the, and the apostles give a lot of different answers. You're John the Baptist, you're one of the prophets. And then he asks them, but who do you say that I am? And then Peter says this, notice in verse uh, 29, Peter answered him, you are the Christ." Verse 30, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. Jesus here explains to them with the understanding of Peter saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He then says, here is what's going to happen. I'm going to die on the cross. By Peter saying you are the Christ, he's saying you are the Messiah. Jesus is now explaining the ministry of the Messiah in his first coming. And Peter has this response. Notice the verse 32. And he, and he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Right? The irony is not lost on any of the reader. You just said he's the Messiah. He just told you God's will, and then you're going to take him aside and rebuke him? Now, granted, any time that you and I sin or we question or we, we, say, we say things that, that are not from a right attitude, it's possible that we've even rebuked the Lord for the things that he's, he's doing in our lives. And I'm convinced that if I was there and I had an understanding of what I think most Jews had an understanding of the Messiah at that time, and Jesus would have said that. I know my personality, and my personality would have been to take Jesus aside and say, now, Jesus, do you understand that the Messiah is supposed to come and bring in the kingdom? Kick out the Romans? Do you understand that, Jesus? Don't say that you're going to die, because that's not the picture. Right? Any one of us could have done this. Now, notice what Jesus says next. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. That's just an interesting response, right? So you get the idea that Peter and Jesus, their back is turned towards the disciples. Jesus then turns to face Peter towards the disciples, and he rebukes Peter. And notice what he says. He says, get behind me, Satan. By the way, last week we learned that success was Christ-likeness. If Christ calls you Satan, that is failure, right? The opposite of Jesus would be Satan. 
Now, now why? 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 Notice this. For you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on things of man. You see? That is, that's easy to do, right? To be so focused on what's happening here, thinking about things of man, having the interests of man, thinking on things of the earth. Now, that's incredibly easy to do, and it's incredibly easy for us to have such an earthly perspective that when it comes time for God to show us his will and show us this glorious truth of the gospel, we even then go and rebuke God. We're against his will. That's a really easy thing to do, right? It's a really easy thing to stand in God's way because I'm so focused on the things of man and not focused on the things that are above, the things that are, that are from God, God's interests. So when we talk about this issue of future failure as believers, of course all the non-believers, of course they're going neck, neck break speed towards failure, right? Unless the grace of God saves them. I'm not concerned with people outside. I'm your pastor and you're here listening now. My desire is that we all walk in a way that's wise, And what I'm saying is, because I know this is true from Scripture, I know this is true in my life, that it's easy to act foolish and do things that are counterproductive to my spiritual life that look a lot like failure. We as believers need to spend time in God's Word. We need to spend time praying. We need to spend time with Jesus. We need to be walking by the Spirit And as we're walking by the Spirit, spending time in his word, praying, the Holy Spirit works on us and makes us more and more like Jesus, and we respond in a way that's wise. That's the solution for us. That's how we keep our eyes focused on the things that God wants us to keep our eyes focused on. It's easy to get distracted on other things. We need to just bear down on the word. We need to spend time with Jesus. It's like an airplane going down. You don't try to help others before you secure your own seatbelt. You don't try to help others before you put the air mask on yourself. We need to make sure that we're walking with the Lord, that we're spending time in the word, that we're looking to Jesus. And by God's grace, he will give us opportunities to share the gospel with those who don't know Jesus. And by his grace, we'll have boldness. And by his grace, we'll have the words to say in that moment. And by God's grace, he'll work in the hearts of those whom are his. And we will glorify God because it is his work from the beginning to the end. Amen? Let's go ahead and let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Gracious Father, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus. We thank you so much for everything that you've blessed us with. We ask that we would remain focused on the truth of your word, that we would stay focused on Christ, and that we would not get distracted by the myriads of other things that are going on around us. Though it is foolish for us not to be aware of these things, it is foolish for us to be so concerned about them when we can do nothing about them. Father, we think about this uh, thing that's happening in Ukraine And with Russia and the invasion of Russia, Father, we ask that you would end that conflict, that you would be with our brothers and sisters who are there. 
We ask that you would keep their eyes focused on the same things that we heard about this morning, on your word, on the gospel, on your son, Jesus Christ. We know that you are in control and help us trust you. Help us learn to lean on you uh, so that we may offer up a life and a heart of wisdom. We thank you and love you for everything you've blessed us with. In your son's name, amen.